Pachango. To Tangentially Speaking, Lunatics Far and Wide, this is Chris Ryan coming at you with another episode 590-something, not sure exactly, but we're pushing 600 here. 600. 600. Fuck. This episode is with a guy named Wes Atkinson, really interesting guy I met sitting by a fire at a party couple months ago and um we just got to chatting a little bit and within a few minutes i i knew i wanted to have him on the podcast if he was willing um because he's he's just an interesting cat he's um someone who grew up way out in the middle of nowhere in northwest colorado largely unsupervised wild child running through the woods and uh like a lot of kids he found comfort in nature he found safety in self-reliance in silence in knowing how to climb a tree knowing how to take care of himself and as often happens for kids who are out in that kind of environment, he learned to hunt. And um, if I'm not mistaken, the economics of the situation made bringing meat to the house uh, quite helpful and quite important. So it was something that was meaningful from the beginning. This isn't um, target shooting or uh, just sort of, you know, reckless macho nonsense. This was about food and about interacting with nature and animals in a way that um, held us spiritual importance. And um, our conversation is about how that trajectory has taken him in play, to places he wasn't expecting and, and uh, the process of recognizing that Maybe your life isn't going in the direction you thought it was going and the challenge of changing direction when you've got all that momentum pushing you to keep going further and further in the direction that, you know, you found success in air quotes, as so often happens. You know, they tell you, uh, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. But what they don't tell you is that when you monetize and commercialize and make a business out of what you love, often you lose the love. And uh, so maybe that advice is a little more, you know, it cuts both ways. You got to be careful about taking what you love and turning it into a money making operation. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this uh, this conversation with Wes Atkinson. Uh, he's uh, he's an interesting guy. Uh, before I forget and before I turn you over to the conversation with Wes, I want to mention that this Saturday, so today is Thursday, February 8th. I'll be posting this as soon as I finish slapping it together. So those of you who hear this Thursday, Friday, uh, there will be an info session online that Anya and I will be hosting for anyone who might be interested in coming to the Sex at Dawn retreat in Montana this summer. Uh, we were talking with Cameron and Melaine the other day, and we were sort of joking about how, um, you know, people get why <laughs> people don't really know what it is. And, you know, I talk about it on the podcast and, there's an information page on their website, of course. Uh, you know, you can read about what it is and uh, get a sense for for what's going on there. But, you know, people um, 
I think you're trepidatious as certainly makes sense. You know, you're going to meet a bunch of strangers and talk about sex and relationships and movement and emotions and, you know, just have this kind of really uh, authentic and, and raw experience. Uh, that's a hard cliff to jump off without knowing how deep the water is down there and uh, that you're going to be okay. So Anyway, any anybody who's thinking about it but isn't really sure and wants to ask questions and you know wants to get a a clearer sense of what's going on this Saturday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, Anya and I are going to be doing this thing. And if you can't make it this time, that's cool. I, I realize this is very short notice. Uh, we just decided to do this a couple days ago. Um, but if you are interested in something like this. Send me an email and um, we'll probably do another one in a couple of weeks. So we'll give you more notice for that one. Uh, it'll probably also be a Saturday at about one o'clock just because, you know, people work during the week and, and people are coming different time zones. So we try to pick a time that's relatively accessible for everybody. Um, but anyway, send me an email that Chris Ryan at gmail.com and in the subject, uh, heading just write something about Budokan info session and I'll make sure to send you a link. So that's if you're interested in coming to this one on Saturday or a future one, um, send me that email and we'll make sure that you're on the list to get updates on that. Okay. I think that's all I'm going to talk about here. I'm not doing any ads. I'm trying to hold off on the ads, but I am going to keep doing the paid in free versions so those of you who are um, paying subscribers uh, via Substack will hear the entire conversation. And those of you who are free subscribers um, will not. Now, if you are a free subscriber, just because you don't, you, you, you listen to a lot of other shit and you can't, you know, really be bothered to pay five bucks a month for this. I get it. Totally cool. But on the other hand, if you are someone who really does want to listen to this and does want the bonus material and does want to be in the book club and all that. By the way, we're also having the book club meeting this Saturday at 11. Um, but that's also for paid subscribers, bonus content, yo. Um, anyway, if you want that stuff and it's just a question of cash is tight, let me know. Uh, or if you're in Iran and don't have access to credit cards, or if you're in North Korea or, uh, I, I got an email from someone recently saying that uh, their English teacher turned them on to this podcast uh, because I speak slowly and clearly. <laughs> I think that's because I lived in foreign countries, you know, overseas so long that I'm used to people. I'm used to speaking with people for whom English isn't their first language, including two ex-partners. Um so anyway, if you're listening to this because you're practicing your English and somebody told you this might be a good place for that, welcome. Wes speaks relatively slowly and clearly as well. So hopefully this conversation will be intelligible to you. Um, yeah. So anyway, if you want the bonus content and can't afford it, get in touch and I'll hook you up. Thank you for listening, everybody. Sending a lot of love out there. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Wes Atkinson. And I will be back with you soon. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting here at our beautiful Monterey Cypress Bar in Crestone, Colorado. The bar was provided by my friend Michael, who has a, a business in Oakland, California. He's an arborist. And when we bought this place, he said, let me send you guys a nice slab of wood. And he sent us this beautiful slab of Monterey Cypress. Um Thank you, Michael. And I'm here with Wes Atkinson, who I met sitting by a fire at a party, uh, what, two weeks ago, like a pre-Thanksgiving party or something? Yep, fireside chat. And this all happened because there happened to be a, an empty spot on the bench next to me, and you and your partner came over, and we got to chatting, and holy shit. Yeah. Interesting dude. And this is the thing about having a podcast that's so great. You meet somebody who strikes you as interesting and you can just say, Hey, I, I got a podcast. You want to come uh, hang out for uh, an hour or so? And people make time for it. It's awesome. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I've thought about it every day since we sat down. I was like, wow, okay, a podcast. I should have a podcast. We should have recorded our conversation while we were sitting there. (laughs) Yeah, that would be a little oppressive if I just went through life with microphone, you know, like, hey, oh, okay, you said something interesting. Let me just dominate your time for the next couple hours. Um, No, but it was was cool uh, just sort of, you know, and, and what I like this podcast to be as much as possible is spontaneous, right? Which is why I called it tangentially speaking. So you go off on tangents. tangents. Like I'm not trying to keep you, you know, most of what we talked about the other night involved hunting and, and human interaction with wild animals and yep. um, and that kind of stuff. But if we end up talking about the time you robbed a bank, that's fine with me. Okay, we'll yeah. get to that. Okay, good. <laughs> so uh, you are, you grew up, Northwest Colorado, the middle of fucking nowhere, where I happen to have driven through in my van a few times. Yep. You knew the place. When you started mentioning Gates of Lidore, that's when I knew you knew my stomping ground. That's that's pretty out there. That's out there. That's, uh, for most people, that would be considered the middle of nowhere. Yeah. That was where I grew up. That was my home. Craig, wh- Craig, Colorado, Maybell, Colorado. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Craig, okay. Craig's yeah. the big town up there. Craig's the only... Well, yeah, that's where all of it's happening. And then you go about an hour back to the west, and now you have Steamboat. Right. So you have an entirely different culture yeah. than the mining culture or the hunting culture or agriculture of Craig. It becomes... It's a very... You know, it's desert, uh, high desert... Um, very remote and it's full of outlaw legends yeah craig is so i come through craig coming down through wyoming right it's like right over the the state border yeah Yeah. bags down the highway to craig yeah yeah right over the little snake river right yep right uh and why were you living there as a kid well let's see why was i living there as a kid man my dad is from southeast Colorado, Lamar. So his um, education brought him to CSU at Fort Collins. And then he got a job with the Bureau of Land Management. And my mom and my dad lived in a little tiny trailer out by Gray Rock, which is very near where we're talking, and began to form their family. Hmm. Um, he's a 49er. So baby boom generation. And he went from the Bureau of Land Management to the coal mining industry. And without coal, Craig wouldn't exist. So I grew up a a miner's kid. Hmm. Um, very young, my mom left. And so it was my brother and me and my dad growing up in about seven miles north of Craig. Uh, those were the days where supervision was a bit optional. Right. Um, Especially a single parent. Single parent and living in a very remote location where, I don't know, it's a Gen Xer type vibration of every man for himself. Right. And that's where, I guess, to answer the question, that's where my dad stayed. That's where my dad lived. So, and I lived with him, and my brother, and we we grew up together. Just uh... <laughs> all right. I just uh, I just uh, noticed that Wes was tapping the table while he was talking. So. A little nervous still. Gave him a good talking to there. (laughs) God damn it, Wes. Put your hands in your pockets. Um, So you were, uh, is your brother older or younger? Two years younger. Okay, so you're the big brother. Dad's off in the mine. Was it open pit or? Yeah, open pit. Right. Um, Yeah. A uh, common practice was a three o'clock blast. So they would remove the overburden. Uh And that was a regular everyday event right you hear the explosion yep see it sitting up on top of the hill and there it goes yeah see the removal of it and then 20 seconds later boom from where i was at yeah yeah Yeah. and so your is your place like in a neighborhood or you know 40 acres 40 acres yep 
and north of town um, where it backed up to the BLM. So 40 acres turns into 3,000 acres, wow. which turns into a lot of exploration. Right. And that's where it all begins. So you were you with your brother, or was he off on his own doing his thing? Well, it's kind of the uh, two brothers with the same influence with totally different perspectives. Right. I'm more of a uh, outdoors type person. My brother's a musician. Oh. My brother wants to play bass. Cool. And listen to Dawkin and Jam and Nirvana. And he's the kid that's uh, doing the the dance uh, music, musical side of it. They're letting right. him perform. That's right. kind of the new days of that. Wes is nowhere around any social scene right. <laughs> for the most part. I'm fascinated by the deer. Right. And was it primarily the deer or just being outside away from social shit? Or was there something about deer that really drew you? I mean, I I turn, like, I can look at it from this perspective and see that I really love the deer. That kid is just simply trying to figure out life. Right. He's in a place of self-discovery um, you know, a rather intense process just to daily be a, a little guy growing up in that atmosphere. So I, where I guess all of us find our own medicine and that's what I, I took to the outdoors. I took to like, I got places that when I was six, 10, 15 years old that I still go and sit, uh, you know, like a it, sacred spot. It's or, a special place. Yeah. yeah. And I began to make sacred places, special places, not really realizing what I was doing. Right. But that's kind of where it, it began was this is my happy place. Why why is this my happy place? You know, I'm obviously a little bit uncomfortable in social settings. Uh easily you could you know, a psychologist could grab a hold of this whole story and, and break it all down. Right. Um but either way for me that was just what was natural to me. And then I ended up being very good at it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also where the identity comes in of, wow, that animal is on that hill and at 12 years old, I know how to do that. You just know where it's going to go. You can sort of get inside its head and feel what it's And feeling. it was natural for me. Right. It was, I would sit in class and be like, okay, if, you know, I'd run through the scenarios and then realize, you know, I hadn't listened listened all day i was just completely consumed and captivated by what i could experience from a caterpillar to a deer and then hunting brings in the element of the weapon so that also is a big part of my childhood as well is getting used to something that is lethal right ultimately ends up being uh, you know, even as a man, that's still a, a deep experience to consider myself a hunter at this point and to really realize that what I'm holding in my hand has the power to take a life. And yeah, yeah, I think that's something in America that is it's it's a strange thing. It, this country, have you ever seen a film called American Beauty? Yeah, I just watched it two nights ago for it's, like the fifth time probably fuck what a movie um but but it really it's so much about american culture how how it's like totally overdone on one side and to, and repression on the other side so it's like it's like sexual you can't breastfeed in public but we make more porn than anyone in the world like what what is that like we're scared of tits but it's a billion dollar tit industry, you know? It's like, what the fuck is wrong with this country? It, it. I lived in Spain for 20 years. I don't know if we talked about that, but looking back at the States from Spain, it's like this place is run by 14-year-old boys. It's all the conflict and fascination. And Anyway, guns. Guns. They're everywhere. Absolutely. Right? But what you just said about respect for weapons and an understanding of weapons, I feel like, very few people have it because they just see guns as something on TV in the movies. Mm. Oh, I'm going to get, I think I'm going to get a shotgun and, or maybe I'm going to get a, you know, a fucking semi-automatic nine millimeter Walter PPK like James Bond has. They don't 
realize what the fuck is, you know, the depth of what they're dealing with. I grew up yeah. in Pennsylvania. Deer hunting is huge, white-tailed deer. And not in my family, but almost all my friends had guns around the house and their dads were hunters and took them out when they were young. And like, you know, 12, 13 year old boys have 22s or, you know, they're they're hunting with their dads and they're yeah. out there shooting animals and gunning them. And, you know, and those kids understood what a gun was. And I feel like we're in this weird space now where there are lots of guns but nobody knows really what they are yeah what they're capable of and then there's a a romanticism to it there's there's so many layers to weapons and so like my story is hard for me to tell sometimes because it's just my story it's what i what i came up with and to be handed a gun at such a young age with Yes, there is a mentorship there. There's a entire protocol that's followed. There's guidelines. And yet to truly understand that when you point that thing at something, that's the end of that thing. And that, it, that as an 11-year-old kid, you have now been given the power to end a heartbeat. You tell me that that 11-year-old kid understands the depth of that. Yeah. Yeah. Very deep experience. And now his picture's on Facebook, and he did a good job, right? In this day, the, the day we had was the Polaroid day. But either way, if we had a picture of ourselves with an animal we killed, that's how we knew to share about who we were. Mm. Like, truly, the relationship to look what I did right? with the, a weapon that gives me a power that creates a relationship to my ego self that I will spend a lot of years coming to terms with. Yeah. Do you remember the first animal you killed? Absolutely. Can you talk about it? Um, if you're, yeah, don't let this conversation go anywhere that feels like that's a sacred space. You don't want to get okay. into, I okay. mean, don't let me push you anywhere. You don't want to go, you know? Well, thanks for helping. <laughs> I'm I'm still getting used to it. Okay, so I think about this a lot. Um, this is your question fuels my journey to a degree is recognizing the feeling that I had when I killed something. Yeah. Now I recognize it as a release of DMT and a very scientific process that's taking place because of my that original question. Um. And I replay this scene and why I have the perspective that I do is because of replaying this scene and that I was, I was five Mm. and I had a BB gun. And I mean, if you, the amount of energy, this is something that I still in inquiry with, but I was so excited to go hunting. Like if, when the, Later, when the adults are loading up their gear and laying out their gun cases and, like, getting prepped, I would put my sleeping bag in the middle of the gear, and I would sleep there Hmm. to make sure I got, if I wasn't going to wake up or they were too quiet, that they didn't forget me because of how much I knew that's where I wanted to be. Like, I didn't care about school. I, I was an athlete. Um, everybody who played with me knew that I would come to the game with blood on my hands. That that was just how the culture that I grew up in developed. But anyway, so to answer that question, I've got a BB gun, and I'm learning that the daisy, it's a daisy, so it's one of those old-fashioned, you single pump, mm. and you can hear it, ka-tunk, yeah. and when it shoots, it goes, dunk. It's a spring-loaded mechanism right. that sends that projectile, that round projectile, towards the target. Well, I got to where, when I was little, I could tell that the sights weren't on, right? Like, I could put the sights there, but that's not where the BB would go. And those things don't have adjustments. So I got to where I would watch the BB and see where it would hit, and then I would aim according to where the BB would go. And at five years old, I, I remember there was a pile of lumber uh, in the backyard. We lived out in the country on 40 acres. And there was just a piece of some old shingling and parts of the house that we built. 
and the birds would kind of hang out in there. So I would just go lay in that, in the, in the shingles as just a little guy. And I somehow, even then I knew to kind of wear clothing that would work for that. It was already a part of, um, being incognito. Part of the hunting paradigm is to be invisible. So it's a immediate relationship to being perceived. And so I, I learned very quickly about the perception of a bird, the speed of it, the sensitivity of it. That, And then I would miss. And for a long time, I just missed. You know, I would get close. I could do all the things. Except I would that BB would just go off to the side of that bird. And then one day, it didn't. And I remember noticing the amount of adrenaline and the feeling that took over my body and that now that game I was playing isn't. So (laughs) this story has some layers to it that are very, that I'll just leave out, which in some sense makes the story way more interesting, but also uh, there's a consideration for all of us that I still have in our own processes. But the thing that I want to just say is that the first thing that I can, I felt was I've got to show dad. And so that began the investigation of recognizing that there were some things that I was doing even young so that I could show dad. Yeah. How did he react? He, um, I brought it in the house, so I was so super excited. And I ran downstairs and opened up the door, and he was in a in a state to not be. Uh, he didn't care. It wasn't something that was important to him. He didn't see what what it meant to what you. What was happening? Right. He doesn't remember right. the experience, which is also part of <clears throat> um, the self honesty of of replaying that experience. And then seeing that experience in many layers play out over time Mm. and recognizing that there was a part of me that was genuinely hunting so that I could show somebody what I had done. Right. Did you feel any grief? Not, not about your father, but about the bird itself. I, sometimes I wish that I did that. Like I, I go in there and I ask those questions and I'm like, I don't think so. I think full on, I couldn't believe I did it. Um, it felt like some, an accomplishment for a five-year-old. Like I was in a place of like, wow, I really did this. I, yeah. it's a, to, to nobody it matters, but to me it did. And, and then when I went to go see if it mattered to somebody else, that's when I was like, oh, but not old. And you know, I got years in here. I got a lot of process to, to even say what I'm saying now from this point of view, but I still remember the feeling. So that's what I used. And it was a absolutely a light. It was a wren. Mm. It was a little wren. I shot a wren once. You did. And I ate it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can tell. I like these stories. <laughs> it was okay. So my buddy and I, I think I might've mentioned my best friend when I was, 13, 14, 15. I, I moved away from Pennsylvania when I was 15, but this guy was my soulmate. My, you know, you know how friendships are when you're that age. I mean, although you're out in the middle of nowhere, maybe you didn't experience this, but the, the, this guy was like my best, best, best. Oh, I think I have an exact relationship to that. Okay. He's dead now. I just found out recently. I Googled him and oh. he died years ago. Anyway, his name was Dave Rabassi. His mother was Apache Indian. His father was Italian, I think, mafia. Okay. Um, his father mysteriously had a Learjet and a glass eye. And somehow he had a license to fly jets with one eye, which is not, not supposed to happen. <laughs> but he was in this little town in western Pennsylvania. He owned the flight school. He had a bunch of Cessnas. And a Learjet, and he would just disappear for a while and then come back. And gorgeous wife. No one really, you know, a lot of mystery. <laughs> anyway, Dave, his son, 
was this badass kid, half Indian, half Italian, super good looking, understood women at 13, 14 years old in a way I'm still trying to figure out. He was he was sleeping with our geometry teacher, right? And he wasn't bragging. He was like, don't tell anyone. But, you know, and I remember one time I, I walked with him to her place and he was like, okay, just hang out here. I'll wave to you from the window. And he did. He's like, hey, what's up? And he goes, fuck's our geometry teacher at 14 years old. Like, anyway, he was a prodigy. He's a really interesting kid. And he was super into hunting and trapping. He ran a trap line before school. And, you know, like you mentioned, you showed up to sporting events with blood. He would come to school every morning with blood splattered on his jeans from the raccoons and the otters and whatever, the muskrats that he was killing on his trap line. I remember going with him one time to a trapper's convention or a trapping convention, I guess, where they were, you know, selling pelts and... Um, you know, trapping gear and I, I don't remember what, but I remember it was in a big muddy field and there were like tables and guys selling stuff and and there was somebody selling beaver meat. Yes. Like in cones. And yeah. it was a big joke like, hey, it was the first time you ever ate beaver. Oh, you know, that kind of shit. So anyway, I, so one time Dave and I were going to go uh, camp for a weekend and he was bringing his i think he had a pellet gun i mean he had all kinds of guns but i think he brought the pellet gun and we had this idea we were gonna like eat off the land yeah and there was this little bird i think it was a wren are they like little gray birds with like a little like a brown chest it's about um, yeah, you know sparrow there's so many different yeah. little birds i they have kind of a little bit longer tail their tail is about as long as their body uh yeah i don't remember real but i remember he gave me the gun i shot it hit it totally blew my mind Did, like you hadn't used the weapon ever before i think you, i'd like you know shot cans shot some cans some yeah. cans so, but i was no kind of marksman or anything okay but you know boom the poof feathers all over the place and this bird's dead and dave was like well good shot like now we gotta eat it you know and and he plucked this little yes. thing and and <laughs> cut the guts out and I think what he, he like, I don't know if you can fillet a bird, but he like cut the breast off. And I remember the breasts were like, yeah. you know, the, the fingertip. Yeah. Left side, right side, breast bone. Yeah. S- right. Single slice and he then separate. Off. Yeah. yeah. And and put them on a little stick and we, you know, roasted them over our campfire and had like a tiny little morsel of songbird breast. Um, and I think that was the first time. I ever ate anything I killed. I killed a rabbit by mistake once. I used to, I guess I killed a lot of shit by mistake. I kind of mistake. Oh yeah. The, what's, what do you mean by mistake? Well, so I had this thing. Um, I lived in like kind of a suburb area, uh, North of Pittsburgh. And, but there were a lot of trees, a lot of forest around. And this is, I was born in 62, so I'm 10 years old in 72. And there's like a whole kind of hippie back to the land thing happening. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. There's a lot like the American Indian movement. There's stuff happening um, on reservations. Uh, Indians took over Alcatraz Island to protest the, you know, all the injustices that they'd suffered. And there was a lot of consciousness around Indians. And I had this, I mean, I would look at it now similar to some of your experiences as a kid. I was very awkward, not happy in school. And, you know, I just had my friend Dave and Dave was a weirdo. (laughs) And um, I, I, I felt like I was born in the wrong time, in the wrong place, in the wrong body. I'm an American Indian. Like I'm an, Iroquois. you had that yeah. experience. Yeah. Okay. Like, and it sounds ridiculous now, but like I was fully into it. I read books about Indians every day. Every book I could read was about Indians. So did I, I understand. I came home from school, took off my clothes, put on my loincloth and my moccasins. And that's all I wore until I had to go to school the next day or Monday morning. 
slept on the ground because Indians didn't sleep in beds. You know, <laughs> you took it personal. Oh yeah, I was like, it was a- stalking around the neighborhood in my loincloth. You know, <laughs> the neighbors' fucking backyards and stuff. Um. Anyway, so I was. And I had red hair as a kid, too. So mm. I was a red-headed, red-headed, weirdo Indian wannabe with a bath towel loincloth. Did you make a bow? Uh, I met several bows uh, out of ash, which yeah. was apparently the, the wood you wanted. Um, I trimmed birch bark off trees. I made a wigwam in the backyard. I totally understand. You know, I staked out <laughs> rabbit skins. When Dave would go hunting, he'd give me the skins and... Anyway, uh, I'm stalking around thinking I'm an Indian and there's this rabbit there and there was a bush next to me that had these hard little kind of crab apple things. And I twisted one off and I fired it at this rabbit, hit it in the head. The rabbit jerked around a few times, flopped around on its side and then didn't move. I was like, what the the fuck did I do that? So I walk over to this rabbit. This fucking rabbit's dead. Like, holy shit, I killed this rabbit. Now what am I going to do? And then I hear this weird squeaking sound coming from under this pine tree. And I go over and I look under the pine tree and there's a nest with these baby newborn rabbits. Eyes closed, just tiny, tiny little rabbits. So I start fucking crying. Wow. I'm a monster. What have I done? I've wow. killed the mother. I can't just walk away and leave these rabbits to die. And it's a big fucking tragedy. I was probably nine or ten or something. Um, so I, I, don't, I must have, I don't know what I did. But somehow I got the rabbits and I brought them home, the babies. And our next door neighbor was a nurse. And she... I guess I talked to her and she gave me a syringe without the needle, just the plastic part. And she said, well, you're going to have to like feed these rabbits. What? Yeah. But she said, make sure you mix water. Make sure you do like a one-to-one mix. Because she was smart enough to know that rabbit milk was less fat content than cow milk, right? So I mixed it and I fed these fucking rabbits. What? And, uh, And then I went back. Here's a weird thing. I went back maybe the next morning or something to bury the mother and the body was gone. So maybe a dog came and got her or maybe she wasn't really dead. Maybe she was faking it to get rid of me or to distract me from the nest or I don't know. Anyway, I had these rabbits now. You didn't see blood on her? No. No. How long were you there? It was just that crab apple. 10 minutes maybe yeah still a mystery then yeah Yeah. i get it okay anyway so i ended up raising these rabbits um there were maybe five (laughs) or six of them you are unique yeah you i had them in my bedroom and they they would like crawl around and my dog would like go pick them up and bring them back and put them between my legs you know and i had them in a little box and i had a heating lamp and this whole fucking thing and they made it they didn't make it they didn't make it here's what happened i probably had those rabbits for two weeks maybe more they went from like tiny little you know the size of your thumb to a handful so they grew they grew fast and they got fur, you know, they, they were kind of almost hairless when I found them and they got their little brown rabbit fur and they got cute. Uh, and I think one of them opened his eyes and the other still had their eyes closed. And um, we had to go visit my aunt and uncle in Ohio and my parents didn't want me bringing a box of rabbits in the car. <laughs> Understandably, it was like a five-hour drive or something. And um, so my my biology teacher in school said, well, why don't we have another kid take care of your rabbits while you're gone? And it'll be a learning experience and it'll be all great. And she was a nice teacher. I liked her. I forget her name. She was a nice lady. So I brought the rabbits to school and there was this girl who was going to take care of them. 
And I explained the whole situation and I'll be back Monday. And, you know, so it's like Friday to Monday or whatever. And she took the rabbits. I come back Monday. The girl didn't come to school Monday. Then Tuesday, she didn't come to school. I'm like, what's up with this girl? And the teacher's like, I don't know. She's must have a cold or something. And anyway, um, this is taking way too long. But basically what happened was she forgot to add water to the milk. Oh. And so the rabbits were dying. And she freaked out and she didn't want to tell me and she didn't know what to do. And she didn't come to school and she's at home like losing her mind. Mm -hmm. And then by the time she came to school Wednesday or Thursday, there was one left and it was almost dead. And she brought that and... You know, I said the thing like, what did you do? The water and oh, water. And so, um, and then I remember I had this rabbit and it died in class and the teacher, I must've been, you know, losing my shit. And, and I remember the teacher saying, well, you know, um, you can just give the last, you know, little bunny to me and I'll take care of it. Or if you want, you can put it in a little box and you can go out in the woods and you can bury it and, you know, have a moment and think about life. And, you know, she was really cool. And she's wow. like, this is a teachable Amazing. moment for this kid. Yeah. And so that's what I did. And that that's how the rabbit story ended. And you, it began with a crab apple. <laughs> It began with the loincloth and the moccasins and the silent stalking of the neighborhood in uh, Patterson Township, Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I shot my friend with a bow and arrow. Like I was, I was totally into it, dude. We yeah. play, we play army, you know, and everybody had <laughs> fake guns and I'd be like, no, no, I just have a knife yeah. and I'll be up in the tree and like drop down on you. You know, like I was... I was fully you, into it. You took the guerrilla warfare to a whole level. Oh yeah. I think it it is an interesting um, conversation. Just simply, which one goes with the when when we play cowboys and Indians? Right. It's just interesting to watch what uh, you know an American boy chooses when yeah. it comes to a game. Just to to as a child begins to learn about what he or she identifies with. It's fascinating and a little bit weird that I understand almost everything you're saying from well, my own perspective. Right. I'm wondering yeah. what that is in some way. Well, that's what I wanted to, to get to. I mean, this is a long way around, but I guess the shared feeling is being alone in the woods and having a sense of this. There's something real here that doesn't exist out there. And just recognizing that as, because when you're a 10 year old boy, you're half feral. You're, you're wild, especially, you know. Oh uh, man, when I look back, I'm like, that's all that was. It's right. full on feral. Right. Like absolutely no female presence. Right. And a, a dad who's just a hard worker. And then right. two boys who are full of life. Yeah. I mean, we wanted to live, man. And I, Right here, when when I, uh, I I will say that it's um, it's refreshing to hear how attentive and personal you treated that experience because I'm a long time before I begin to address the of oh, my impact, the impact that I I I, under, I can feel it, but my conditioning and where I'm the feral nature of what I am this is kind of a matter of survival for a while. So I just, I have that deep appreciation now, um, having matured and, and, ref, and I'm a reflective type individual, uh, in my own responsibility to be what it is to be a hunter, what that even means. Cause in some ways you pick up a crab apple and a loincloth what is did what is that? And I feel like right there is where it gets really interesting because you were a little surprised with what you were. There's a moment right. of like, wait, I I did that. Like yeah, that's what I did. The relationship there that comes in. So it's you had a mentor. You had a. I mean, a lady gives you a syringe. 
all of those things just are really personal life-changing moments that at the time mean something more than what we can actually process more than what we can actually Mm. integrate and we're little people experiencing this grown-up moment and we're supposed to just move forward like we know what we're doing and i just really listening to you is like you stopped it was you had an emotional relationship to what you had done my conditioning is that that emotional relationship is something that you're supposed to get over. Mm-hmm. Right. Like get what like I would have I can talk to a lot of places where I'm starting to feel things and I'm like like I'm getting teared up over a hunting environment and I'm just going off to stand by myself so that I don't get made fun of. Right. Because I'm starting to feel something that's um you know it's unique it's unique to ourselves. But it, in that setting, I, I will say that my whether I was alone in that or not, that's my that's how I experienced that was, man, dude, you got to keep that to yourself. This right. is not okay. Now, dial forward however many years. What are you? Forty-seven. Forty-seven. So, yeah. forty years, thirty-five years. Talk about what you're doing now. <sighs> Because yeah. it kind of feels like it fits right in. A hundred percent, but such a journey, right? So to kind of try to organize the language yeah. of something that's so personal and also something that I'm just trying to figure out still. Mm-hmm. It's not something that I'm standing here going, okay, this is the truth or this is the way. I'm like, I think I'm learning hunting for me or being a hunter was the path of self-discovery for me. Right. So then that, as I use that tool, like I think anybody uses whatever profession they have to figure out who they are. Right. And that was, you know, for me, that was hunting. So as you suggest, you and I seem to have a resonance right at, but have you ever just gone out there and sat? Yeah. Yeah, man. I did a lot, and then when I discovered psychedelics later in life, it was like returning to that. Can you speak to that? Like, meaning there's a part of ourselves that through the psychedelics returns in relationship to consciousness, to oneness, to the connection of of what's actually happening when, when the original classical conditioning is to create a separate self and then yeah. figure out the influence and the stimulus that one receives and, and navigate that. And then as you say, and you know, it's a, I've listened to a few of your podcasts and you're very open about the path that you've taken with psychedelics. I'm learning to be open about that, but without psychedelics, um, I also don't sound like this. And I know that. Right. And yeah. so, uh, man, that in itself is just somebody needs to know the nature of that because I was, I was 40 years old before I had enough courage to even step into that. Um, go, went through a divorce, sold my company, was looking at it from, um, how to just categorize this immediately recognizing that my entire company was still trying to show my dad the wren right at a level that's like are you serious yeah and then i had a moment 2012 comes and i'm sitting on a hill and i'm like whoa i don't think i can unsee that I don't think I can continue to move forward knowing what I know now with my entire company. Mm. I would be out of integrity with what I just saw. Right. And I had created something I was proud of. And this was the company you were 
like scouting for documentaries and trophy this is hunting. A, it's just well, I did that. I you know it turns into that because the visible nature of a camera makes everything possible. You can literally where disbelief is, you can take a camera to disbelief and then bring it back to culture, plug it in, and now everyone believes because they just watched it. And I was like, whoa. So I loved, I loved hunting so much that like it took me a long time to get caught up to that what I'm doing doesn't feel quite right at, from a traditional outfitting standpoint. Yeah. Like from a, a place of business, a right. place of commerce, a place of merchandise where there's an exchange of finance that suggests that this is worth that. And I will stand in the gap for that and make that as a service industry. I will make that happen with the skill set that I have. Taking individuals who, man, everyone has their path. And I met all walks of life, thousands of guys. But my, I don't want this to be about anybody but me, but my lesson was watching them sit in the woods with me. And just over time going, I'm not doing good. Mm. This is not actually doing good. I wanted to do good with what I did. My nature is if I'm going to pour myself into something, let it be for good. And I saw a lot of smiles. I saw a lot of hashtags. I saw a lot of excitement. I saw a lot of viral videos. I saw videos, uh, television shows where that was what we set out to do. And that's what we did. And I was successful enough because of my passion that I simply continued to create very positive experiences from an industry standpoint. My skill level was high. My properties were very um, consistent. You know, there was still a hunting inside of each property. Everything has its own personality. When you say property, you mean? A lease. So like oh, as an as an as an outfitter my job was to go look at a property and see what it was worth to the hunting industry. Mm. So I, before we ever hunted it at all, I would sign a contract that said this is what I'll pay you for us to be here mm. and hunt. And over time I just ended up making good choices mm. with this property will produce this and this lease will produce that. And then it just turns into math. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you run into that eternal conundrum, right? Where, you know, everyone talks about following your bliss and do, do what you love and the money will take care of itself. But nobody talks about how, when you start contaminating what you love with commerce, the internal conflict right there was real for me. Yeah. And I over, t because I loved what I did. Exactly. Like follow your dream. Everybody, I was complaining about hunting for a living. No one was listening to me. Sure. Why would they? Uh, why would they? They're like, <laughs> that's what I do on vacation. That's, dude. that's what I've been trying to get to. And, I, and yeah. so I often had a place of like, I've got to figure this out for myself. The feedback is just doesn't seem like it's relevant for my perspective. And, Man, everybody goes through that with yeah. their profession. So I sold that outfitting company because I could not unsee. And nobody, it made sense to no one. Right. And it, it made sense to me at right. a level that was now I begin to understand something that I really want to understand. Like it, it turned into, wow, there's another way for me. And that was, man, right in there is life, right? Right in there is, okay, there's another way. I have no tools. I have the tools that I've got on my back. I, I also read like I was more of a student. But right here is where it's delicate for me to say I get nervous. But without grandmother, I, I'm just stuck in seeing what I know is true, but I don't know why. I don't know how to get back to that. I don't even know if that's is going back wise or go mm. forward. What is what is it linear? No, it's, whoa, what's going on? And like, really, those became my meditative days. Those became my, my days of 
man, then I really went and sat on a mountain. Like that's what I did is I went to uh, like a solo type adventure. Sometimes I would have a weapon. uh, Sometimes I wouldn't, but either way I was there to answer questions that I had had for most of my life. And then I meet a really incredible human being that I give thanks for daily. And he showed me the way of grandmother. Mm. And the first time I put grandmother in my body, I see all these animals. They just start coming to me, all these hunting experiences and why I felt the way I felt and what was a little bit misaligned and where the force was and where the unification, where the patriarchy and the masculine oversight has for the, through the European vehicle has separated the hunter's way of being from the land, from the relationship that now is like, you know, the, the relationship to the feminine is what hunting is for me now. Mm-hmm. It's about restoring my relationship to mother. Right. And that that's the full circle nature of it, which seems to be a resonant thread that we're trying to get to is at the end of the day, what I had to answer at the level of um, what I just call ego deconstruction at that level of self-responsibility was recognizing that this hunting paradigm is imbalanced for me Mm -hmm. and then restoring my relationship to the feminine and that ultimately the hunter is for the mother the hunter is for the land. That's where the hunter is born. What happens, what I did, is I birthed the hunter so that I could fulfill on all of those places that the mother actually does. Mm. So now when I go and I sit out there, I'm listening to what has become more of a spiritual experience for me, which is why I kind of try to dance around that and be a professional. But at the end of the day, the thing that does fuel me is where this new business came from. Now I got the information in 2012, it's 2023. So to say that that was a seamless process or to say that I handled that with grace or didn't make mistakes as I was trying to some of the mistakes I made that are, that haunt me the most are the ones that I knew that it was a mistake and I still did it. Like (laughs) those are always the ones that'll get you. Those are the tough ones. And so, yeah, the, the, it's, I have a tough time describing it because it's so individual, but it did, um, really influenced me to put grandmother I didn't drink or smoke or I was an athlete and had a negative relationship to alcohol from my childhood so it just kept me in a like hyper aware hyper vigilant um, state it's good for hunting makes a person of you know hyper awareness is how I see all the things that I see but also, why am I looking so intensely? Why am I so focused on what I can't see? So I got I got myself to a place where now I know what I feel is true, um, but how do I do it? And man, the confidence that I got from that medicine to stay on this path and to make the choice that it was a psychedelic, but that it was actually activating more of my true self than that I was just on drugs. Sure. Living 40 years old, the first thing I put in my body is taking me to, is like literally giving me access to the cosmos. And I so I had a trauma response just to that because I had never done those things. It was like, um, the Christian paradigm I was raised with, I was already uh, pushing boundaries, you know, like that's all kind of what my, you know, ego self needed. So as soon as I, man, this is so personal. As soon as I put that medicine in my body, a black bear that I shot 
in uh, Manitoba in Manitoba came to me (laughs) on the medicine Mm. in the form of the consciousness that I could communicate with. Like it shifted because I wasn't able to go to that place. So that consciousness shifted and I had this life changing. I have to address right now if this is a psychedelic or if this is actually what I've been feeling all along. Hmm. And that moment for me is the, that's like buck up buttercup. (laughs) (laughs) That's like, yeah, I, no one who, uh, there is no one who I can go talk to now. Who's not going to go. You, yeah, I get it, dude. You took, you took drugs Uh and you had a vision. That's what you opened up those portals. That's what happens. Pretty basic stuff. Do you remember that you lived your whole 40 years telling everybody don't do that? And now you wait, what, who are you? Hmm. And that for me, that's the, I'm, I'm gonna, yeah. Something about this medicine, something about the ancient way, something about my DNA that it was like an embrace for what I had wondered about for a long time. Um, I could talk more about that bear interaction. That's he's, he's who I carry with me now when I go into the field, I use, I use that bear as a reminder to, to help me hold the frequency. His name is Alistair. Um, and he was a Greek farmer before his consciousness related to the bear. And the only way that's possible, right? Because it sounds ridiculous, and I get it. I'm not saying it's not ridiculous, but it doesn't matter because it really got to me. Yeah. It got me right where what I'm saying is. And so now when I come to full draw, um, or I've got my, I can see my heartbeat in the crosshairs on another animal's heartbeat, I'm asking questions about who they are. Mm. And, and it has now become a healing modality for me to recognize there's a lot more going on than I thought. Right. And to in the 3d in a act of killing in an act of the mundane and violence walking as a hunter through those steps, recognizing a way of being that allows for it to continue to be a healing modality for me. Right. Instead of doing something that I'm like, literally, I can't even, I can't do that anymore. I can't, I, in fact, I will say this, my journey is, it has evolved now to where I'm, I'm like 99% sure that I have been asked to not kill mm-hmm. ever again. Well, that seems like a good place to, uh, to cut this off. If you want to hear the rest of the conversation, please consider going to chrisryan.substack.com and uh, subscribing. You can subscribe for a month, a year. You get a discount for a year. I think it's five bucks a month, 50 bucks a year. So significant discount for a one-year subscription. Thank you for listening. Uh, I will play you out with uh, Smoke Alarm by Carsey Blanton. You're going to die one day. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal doesn't ask for much a little 
music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big deal? If you want to be free, say what you want to feel, spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms, we'll dance into the ground.